A year and a half ago, I was sitting in my college-aged daughter's vehicle in the parking lot of a Dunkin' Donuts, and we were both crying because about four minutes earlier, she said to me, Dad, I want you to hear a song that I just heard recently. And it really feels like this is a song that a lot of people my age and all ages are dealing with. She played me a song that the premise is um, broken. The idea is false, but the feeling is very real. Today in Summer Playlist, we're presenting a song written two years ago by Katie Turner. And on average, it is being downloaded and listened to 100,000 times a month for the last three years. This is by Katie Turner, and the title is God Must Hate Me. must hate me cause he spent so much time on them but for me he got lazy got ample mental illness personality flaws while their only flaw seems to be that they have none at all do you ever see someone and think wow god must hate me i'll let him take accountability for everything that's wrong with me self-responsible so I blame the metaphysical if Jesus died for all our sins he left one behind the body I'm in say your hands and made the moon and the stars got carpal tunnel and forgot some parts I don't know what I believe but it's easier to think he made a mistake with me see someone and think wow they got lucky the craftsmanship of their bones their brain and their body when i look into the mirror for too long it hurts they don't track how many steps it takes to burn off dessert do you ever see someone and think wow they got lucky i'll let them take accountability for everything wrong with me can't hold myself responsible so i blame the metaphysical if jesus died for all our sins he left one behind the body i'm in same hands who made the moon and the stars got carpal tunnel and forgot some parts i don't know what i believe but it's easier to think he made a mistake with me see someone and think wow god must hate me because he spent so much time on them for me he got lazy
yeah, you don't really know what to do after that song. And then I'm supposed to come up and make you laugh, so who's ready to have a good time? Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Melissa Radke and um, Duncan Dyball, Knack, Groves, Iglesia, good morning. I know that y'all don't know me, um, but I feel like I know you. I feel like you're my besties because Pastor Jeremy talks about y'all all the time. But I'm Melissa Radke, and by the time this morning is over, you're going to love me. <laughs> oh, come on, tell them that they're gonna love me. It means nothing. It means nothing if you have to ask for it, just FYI. Um, okay, there is nothing that I wanted more when I was growing up than to be a cheerleader. I thought they were so wonderful, they were so beautiful. Who in here was a cheerleader growing up? Okay, keep your hands up. Of course you were back there, you're so tiny. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, y'all are like, I was. I was a cheerleader. Um, I loved cheerleaders, I thought they were beautiful. Y'all could run so fast, you could turn flips. You were tiny and you could get in people's hands and they would lift you really high. I never understood how you did that. And you could dance to Paula Abdul's straight up, now tell me. That's showing my age, but I don't care. I just, I wanted to be a cheerleader so, so bad. And so I tried out at my local high school. But because this was the 90s, you have to understand, 80s and 90s, you have to understand, this was back when you tried out in front of the entire high school and they judged you. Because that seems like an emotionally healthy thing to do, doesn't it? Who would like to do that today? Absolutely nobody. And I didn't, listen to this, I didn't just try out once, I didn't try out two times. I tried out three times. Three times, and before the third time, my mother came to me and this is what she said, you ain't doing this again. You are not doing this again, there's no way. Melissa, baby, let me be honest with you. When a mother says that, run. Let me be honest with you. You have no rhythm whatsoever, Melissa, none. Honey, you can't even turn a cartwheel. You tried and you broke my ottoman and you owe me $80. But mainly, when you jump, you don't even get up off the ground, Melissa. You can't do this. It's not gonna work, no. And I was like, Mom, I got this. I got this. And so I went and I tried out a third time. And so, yeah, I've never been a cheerleader. Lost even the third time. But I came home that day absolutely broken, and you know my mom held out her arms to me, pulled me close, and got right in my face and said, I told you that this would happen. Didn't I tell you that? I loved cheerleaders, and here's another thing. When you're done with high school, guess where else they are? Oh, college. Oh yeah, and that's awesome. It's one thing to sit by them in like high school geometry. It is another thing entirely to share a bathroom with them in the dorms. They've got their J.C. Penney towel that they can wrap like twice around them when they get out of the shower. You got that one beach towel that your dad bought in Destin that says, I've got crabs, and you're just trying, <laughs> trying to get that thing closed. 
It was around this time that I started hanging out with a buddy of mine. I met a guy at school. It was a great, great friend. And I decided that I would fix him up with a girl on my hall who just happened to be the head cheerleader, the cheerleading captain at our college. And I decided I would fix him up with her. That way, I would be friends with her. She would, she would be friends with me and I could be friends with her. And then maybe if somebody broke a leg, they would call on me. And so I fixed them up and they started dating and it was going really, really well. He liked her a lot. Her name was Shanene. And that actually isn't, wasn't her name. It's just what we called her behind her back. Anyway, he started dating Shanene. But the thing with Shanene is that she would go home on the weekends. Her family lived not too far from the university and she would go home and visit them on the weekends. And when she would be away, he would ask if I wanted to hang out. And so we hung out a lot. And we were just friends. It was strictly platonic. We had a lot of fun together. He asked me, now this was probably pretty close to Christmas. If I wanted to spend the weekend with him, Shanene was going off. You want to go to the Galleria? We'll do some Christmas shopping, maybe some ice skating. I was like, that'd be so fun. So after my last class, I ran back to my dorm to change clothes. And when I opened up my dorm room, there sat the entire cheerleading squad with Shanene right in the middle. And here's what I did. They need me. (sighs) They need me. This is it. I'm stretching. They're calling me up. They're calling me up for service. And she said, stop. That's not what is happening. I decided that I wasn't going out of town this weekend, and I told him that, but he said he didn't want to break plans with you. Now, I know he loves you like a little brother. So what I would like for you to do is to record him talking about me. Now you have to understand, we didn't have iPhones like then. We didn't even know what cell phones were. But we did have a little something called the Sony Walkman. She asked me if I would record him talking about her and I said, absolutely, here for duty. Cheerleader reporting for duty. And I said I would, even though he was my friend. And so I put that Sony Walkman and I hit record in the top of my fake Dooney and Burke purse. And I hit record on it and you could just hear it going. And he came and he picked me up and then we got in the car and we're driving into Dallas. And I said, so, Shanana, am I right? <laughs> She's here and you probably wanted to spend uh, the weekend with her. So you could have broken this. It, it's, I wouldn't have cared at all. And then he said this, well, you want to know the truth. (laughs) I only date her for her car. Have you seen that thing? She lets me drive it, and it goes like zero to 100 in like eight seconds. It's recording. I said, okay, I thought to myself, okay, okay, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. We won't play that part. I'll get, we'll go eat, we'll, we'll talk some more. I'll bring her up again. We'll, we'll get something better out of him. Now, it was at this point of our date that he pulls into a restaurant that we're gonna eat at. I'm gonna tell y'all what it is. You're gonna immediately feel like that you can't relate to me, that I'm just much ritzier and fancier than y'all, okay? And that I'm way up here and y'all are way down here. Don't feel that way but he took me to Macaroni Grill. (laughs) It was fancy back then. It really was. We went to Macaroni Grill and it was big time. And I was like, what are we doing here? This is so expensive. They write on the table. But I sat my purse up on the table. They brought the bread. They brought the olive oil. We started having dinner and 
This is what he says. Melissa, do you want to know why I brought you here tonight? I said, yeah, why? And he said, because you're my best friend. But you're also the first person I think of when I wake up in the morning. And you are the last person I think of at night when I go to bed. I think I am crazy about you. And I was wondering if tonight could be like our first real date. Now you have to understand in high school, I never dated anyone. At this point in my life, I was a freshman in college, I'd never even been kissed. No one wanted to date me in high school. So I got up from the table, I said, you know what? I'm gonna run to the restroom really, really quickly. And I grabbed my purse and I went to go walk off and then I remembered, Melissa, you are stronger than this. You are better than this, girl. Get back to that table, you know what to do. And I walked back to that table and I grabbed that entire loaf of bread. And I said, are you gonna be eating this? If not, I'm gonna take this with me. And then I went to the bathroom and I ate that entire loaf of bread because people say that carbs aren't our friends, but that is not true. They have gotten me through some pretty dark times. And I picked up that tape player and I said, okay, I'm gonna cut this off now. And I cut it off. And we went on to have an excellent night. And he was such a gentleman. When I got back to my dorm that night and I opened up the room and I just floated inside. And there sat the entire cheerleading squad with Shanae in the middle. But this time, my bestie, Casey, was at the very end. I looked over all the cheerleaders and when it got to Casey, she just went, Shanae said, put the tape in. I said, got it, I will, I'm gonna do that for sure, but first, put the tape in. I said, I, and I'm gonna, I'm, I hear ya, and I'm gonna do that. But I'd like to speak to Casey out in the hall. Now Casey was not only my very best friend, she was a lot like me. She was a, a girl that liked to have a good time and every guy was her best friend, but she never dated any of them because she was like me, she was kind of fluffy. We get out into the hall, I close the door, I said, Casey, I got up in her face. I said, Casey, here's the deal. He likes me and I like him and he told me that he likes me and now I don't want it to do because it's all on the tape and I can't play it for her. She looked me in the face and she said, have you been eating chicken parmesan? I said, Casey, <laughs> that is not the point. That's not the point. What do I do? She said, you gonna play the tape? I said, no, I, I'm, that's what I'm asking you. Should I play the tape? She said, no, no, no. I didn't ask you, are you gonna play the tape? I told you, you gonna play that tape. You gonna play that tape for every fluffy girl that never made cheerleader. You gonna play that tape for every fluffy girl that never went to prom. You gonna play that tape. And I went back inside and I put it in the tape player and I played it. When that tape was over, Shanae stood up and they all stood up with her at the same time. And then they all turned their bodies like this. And they walked out in what is the most beautiful formation I have ever seen. <laughs> it was so beautiful that I actually got behind them and started walking and Casey was like, nope, you're not one of them, no. I could hear her down the hall screaming at him, screaming at him. I heard her slam down the phone and a few minutes later, I hear my RA come over the intercom and she says, Melissa, you have a guest in the lobby. Melissa, you have a guest in the lobby. I walk down and I see him standing there and he looks at me and all he says is, get the tape. And I go get it and we walk out to his car and he puts the tape 
right behind the front driver's side tire. We get in, he backs over it, and he drives across it, and he backs over it, and he drives across it, and then we made out. (laughs) And I had never made out with anybody ever, so I called my mom and told her all about it. And she's like, Melissa Page, I don't want to hear this. Jean, she made out with somebody finally. Yes, she did. Melissa, don't call me again. And I just tell you that story because sometimes it's very important to know that the good girl does get the guy because I have been married to him for 29 years. And you know what happened to Shanene? Nothing. She's actually married to a really great guy. They've got beautiful children. I tell you that story because school was a very, very painful place for me. High school, even college, it was very painful. It's, I, I, I never dated anyone. I never was asked to a homecoming. I never got a mom. I never went to a prom. No one ever asked. And I never fit in. I'm not telling you this to be like, woe is me, but it does set the stage to you for some feelings that I began to get at that time in my life that Sage actually sang about. It was during that time that I came to understand that God must hate me. Because I would look at all the other girls and all the other boys, and then I would assume on me, he just got lazy. And God must hate me. And that's when I began to form that thought in my head. Because when you're 16 years old and your body doesn't look like hers and your, your hair won't do what hers does and you're not dating the, the guy that she, that she was dating and, and you, you, you're a Hudson High School senior and everybody there plays sports, but you, you watch Broadway musicals for fun and you write plays in your journal that no one will ever read. You just kind of don't fit in. And when you're asked for a whole pass on the daily because people assume by your body size that you're a substitute, it's just kind of painful. Does God hate me? Did he just get lazy? My mom played a lot of music around our house when I was growing up and I walked into the kitchen one day when this song was playing and I slunk down into the kitchen chair because I thought it described me so perfectly. And here's what it says. I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin smiles who married young and then retired. The Valentines I never knew the Friday night charades of youth were spent on one more beautiful. At 17, I learned the truth. To those of us who knew the pain of Valentine's that never came and those whose names were never called when choosing sides for bad 
basketball it was long ago and far away the world was younger than today when dreams were all they gave for free to ugly duckling girls like me David and I were married and we moved to Nashville with dreams of making it in the music business. Oh, these were our dreams. And this was back in the 90s. And that is when you wanted to live in Nashville. Not now, when you have to wear those hats and little white boots. That would never work for me. But this was back then, and I thought every limousine that I saw, I assumed was Garth Brooks or Shania Twain. I lived in Nashville and I wanted nothing more than to make it in the music business. It was gonna propel me to my dream, which was to move to New York and be a jazz singer. And David was gonna manage me and we had it all worked out. And Nashville loved my voice, but they didn't really like my body. David and I went to Belmont University, which if you're gonna go into the music business is a great school for that. David sat beside Brad Paisley in class and they cheated off of one another. David got the short end of that stick because Brad's a lot richer than we are. It was a great school to go to. I remember one particular class. So if you're sitting in, that, in Belmont University, uh, if you look directly out the window, you will see that directly across the street is Music Row. That's what they call it. And that's where Sony Records and RCA and DECA and all these... The, all the studios and all the record companies are right there. And if you want to make it in Nashville, you're going to start on Music Row. And you could see it from our class. Now, this was a class of about 150 to 200 students in some stadium seating. And the reason that it was such a big class is because the teacher was actually a record producer there in Nashville. He had been producing some of the biggest names and the biggest acts in town. So a lot of people wanted to be in this class. I arrived a little bit late for class. I ran in, I took my seat, and when I did, this is what I heard him saying. I have been to every gig everyone in here has played. I've heard you at the coffee shops, and I've heard you at Tootsie's, and I've gone when you've sang at your churches. I've gone to your senior recitals. I've heard everybody in this town sing, and there is only one person that could make it in this town with their talent, and that's Melissa Radke but I want you to look at her. Nobody in this town is gonna give her the time of day because of how she looks. So no, Nashville didn't like me very much either. But that's okay, because that was when we were just starting to see these reality music competitions come on the screens. American Idol had just started, and I know this is gonna date me a little bit, but there was a channel back then called VH1. And they had a reality music competition that I was absolutely sure was for me. It was called Divas Live. And you could go and you could audition for it. And then if you made it, you would go through these competitions weekly. And then one woman would end up singing on the stage with the biggest divas in the world. Aretha Franklin, Celine Dion, Gloria Estefan, Mariah Carey. Those were the biggest divas. And I was going to do it. And I was going to kill it. 
I just had to drive to Atlanta, Georgia. That's where the auditions were. It was four hours away. I got in a car and I drove down and I ended up seated, seated in a conference room, ballroom full of women. We were sitting shoulder to shoulder like this. One by one, they would call our number and we would go and we would sing on the stage. Now, in the front sat three judges. The lady on the left would sometimes utter a thank you. The one on the right would sometimes say, that was very nice, thank you so much. But the guy in the middle, he must have been in charge because he never said a word. He was in control. He didn't smile, he didn't say thank you, he didn't bob his head, nothing. Finally, it was my turn. I stood up from where I was, I walked to the edge of the stage, and this is what I did. He's leaving on the midnight train to Georgia. Said he's going back to find, oh, a simpler place in time. And I'll be with him on the midnight train to Georgia. I'd rather live in his world than live without him in mine. Oh, thank you very much. When I was finished, the middle judge stood up from his seat, walked up to the stage, smiled at me, and put his hand on my shoulder. He looked at the room full of women, and this is what he said. You wanna be on my show? You better sing like this. But you better not look like this. Next! And I walked off the stage. I got into my car. I drove four hours home. I never turned on the music. I never called my husband, nothing. I got home, I climbed into my bed, and I stayed there for two months. That is not an exaggeration. That is not an embellishment to make the story better. I did not get out of bed for two months. And I had a lot of questions, questions like this. Why would you give me a voice, but not a body? Why would you give me a heart for something and no way to use it? Why would you call me to use a talent that the world hates? And I had a lot of questions, but I'm gonna tell you one question that I didn't have because I was so sure of the answer, and it was this. Have you forgotten about me? I think God has forgotten about me. And I didn't have to question that. I knew it was true. He had bigger fish to fry. He had places to go and people to see. I was not on the list. I had been forgotten, looked over. Maybe you feel that way today. Throughout our time in Nashville, David and I were going to school and waiting tables and trying to make ends meet as best we could and we wanted to start a family so bad. Which led us into 12 years of infertility. So not only does Nashville not accept my body, neither will anything else. This body, just don't work. And I had the best kind of infertility. In case you're wondering what the best kind is, it would be the kind that's called unexplained. It's where the doctors look at you and go, what in the world? We don't know. And I would think, I know. I know why, because it doesn't work, because it never has, and it never will. 
and I hate it. And I wish that I would, I could trade, I would trade bodies with her in an instant. I, I would see women and I would think, God, why wouldn't you let me have that? Why wouldn't you let me have one that worked? Why couldn't I be like any other woman? 12 years is a long time. Five miscarriages, super long time. But eventually, we got pregnant, and I stayed pregnant. In fact, I was pregnant for five months because Elisha Cooper Radke came into the world on Christmas Day, 2005. And we were all alone with him. My family was scheduled to come in a couple of days later. They did not know I would go into early labor. And we were all alone when he came into the world and we were all alone when he left it. An hour and a half later, in what would be one of the holiest moments of my life is when he left this world and I could feel God in the room and so two days later on December 27th, the worship center at our church, much like this one, our church in Nashville was about this size and it was packed with people who had left their families, artists who had left their families to come and be a part of this memorial service. But I will never forget one of the things that my pastor, whom I love dearly, said. He leaned up on his podium and he looked right at me and he said, Melissa, look at me you will sing again. You don't think so, but you will sing again. And you know, he was right. Because it was just a couple of days later when I went to go to the cemetery and look at the marker in this cold, gray December in Williamson County, and I looked down at the marker for a grave I could not explain that made no sense to me, and this is what I sang. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes, and Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. And I didn't mean one word that I sang, but it was all I knew to sing. It was a couple of days after that that I looked at David in our bedroom as we got up on a Sunday morning to go to church. And I am being real transparent because I did not say this in first service because Pastor Jeremy was here, but he's not here now. <laughs> but I looked at David and I said, let's just stop serving him. Can we just stop serving him? 
And David looked back at me and he said the most honest words. He said, but we wouldn't know what else to do. And we didn't. We didn't know where else to go or what else to do. Those were the only words I knew to sing. Even though I didn't mean them and I knew at that moment and that this is right in your notes if you wanna fill it in that God had grown tired of me. He had grown tired of my praying and my pleading and my begging and my wishing and my hoping and my dreaming and he was just sick of me. He must have just tuned me out at this point. God was done with me. He had grown tired of me. And I know that there are people in this room right now who must feel the exact same way. You must feel the same way. Thought the things that I've thought. And here's what you think. God hates me. God has forgotten about me. God has grown tired of me. Here's one. I think God has given up on me. I think he looks at me and says, you're a lost cause. None of this worked out for you and that's on you. Or what about this one? I think God made an awful mistake with me. I think he made a terrible mistake. This is all, this, this whole thing right here, this is just a big mistake. Would you do me a favor? If you filled in those blanks, would you take about five seconds? And would you circle the one that you might feel right now? The one that has haunted you, the one that has taunted you, the one that you're embarrassed to even draw a circle around it for fear that God will see. God already knows. Which one do you think about your life and your situation right now? Just take a second. If you circled one of those, then here comes the good part. This is the really good part. I wanna share with you something that Paul said in Philippians. Let me give you a little background on Paul because y'all, a theologian, I am, okay? No, really, honestly, when I start getting into this kind of stuff, please know, I know I'm not as brilliant as our pastor or as funny as our pastor. I'm actually much, much funnier than our pastor, but I'm definitely not as smart. And so I texted him earlier in the week because I'm gonna be reading you something from Philippians 1 verse 12. And I said, now this is Paul in prison talking to who? And he said, the people of Philippi. And I said, Filipinos? And he said, no, idiot, Philippi. That's actually a place, that's actually a text. I can show you in my phone. That's what he has to put up with. Paul is really in jail, like behind bars kind of thing. And this is what he writes. Now I've kind of like pressed it all together, but essentially he's writing this letter to the church and he's telling the people this, okay? I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment here has had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. All of the soldiers here and everyone else too found out that I'm in jail because of this Messiah. That piqued their curiosity and now they've learned all about him. I know how it's gonna turn out. Through your faithful prayer and generous response of the spirit of Jesus Christ, everything he wants to do in and through me will be done. I can hardly wait to continue on my course. Everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ more accurately known. Listen to this, regardless of whether I live or die, they didn't shut me up. They gave me a platform. 
Now, in my line of work, which a lot of it is on social media, I deal with a lot of unchurched people. If I were to read that passage to an unchurched person, they would say, what in the heck does that mean? So sometimes I will take scripture and I will rewrite it in Melissa's words, which might be sacrilegious, but we hope God knows my heart, okay? Because you kind of have to put it in some different words for them. So this is what the scripture would look like had I written it. You can put it up there. OMG, y'all. What was supposed to happen didn't happen, and now everyone's talking about Jesus, and I'm all like, what? Even my haters, y'all, it's just like T. Swift said, they really are my motivators. And I know how this is gonna play out because I've seen it happen again and again. You'll keep praying, and I'll keep talking, and God will keep moving. And I'm not even sad about everything that's happened to me before because now I know it was all for God's glory and for furthering his kingdom, which is what I surrendered to years ago. Remember when I came home and told y'all I did that? It's just so funny because there were so many who tried to shut me up, but actually all they did was hand me a microphone. Oh, hey, oh, hey. And it works because the unbelievers always go, oh, hey, yeah, we get it now. You just have to do that. Here's why I talk about Paul. Paul is proof that sometimes in the greatest suffering, we find the greatest purpose. Sometimes it's the things that the enemy thought would stop us or kill us or at the very least shut us up and shut us down that ends up being a launching pad for our calling. The darkest parts of your story have the greatest ability to bring light and hope to someone else. Now you may say, okay, you've told us how crappy it was. Can you tell us how you're now standing on this stage sharing with us? Like, can you get to the hopeful part? I will. This is it right here. There are three things that I did in my relationship with Christ as I walked through healing. And I'm gonna focus on those three things for a moment. The first one is my past. You can write down your past. There is not a piece of my story, embarrassing though it may be, that I don't absolutely love sharing. It's my honor to share it because one day not too long ago, I surrendered myself to the calling of God on my life. I said, take all the parts of it, the darkest, the deepest, the ugliest, the messiest, and use it, just use it. This morning I went to Starbucks and on my way back to the church, I literally said out loud, God, I still can't believe I held that child in my arms and now he is a part of the story. You would have never made me believe that on that night that I delivered him back to God. You would have never, ever convinced me of that that all the parts that were so embarrassing and degrading to me as a human would be the things I get to talk about because God was in the messy middle of them. And he's in yours too. He is in your divorce. He is in your debt. He is in your loss. He is in your loneliness. He is in your victories and he is in the victimization. He is in all of it. And until you can rectify that, 
with your past, it will never make sense to you. I'm not standing here today sharing all this with you because I've got it all figured out. I'm walking through stuff even now. But here is what I do know for sure. Suffering is a God-ordained opportunity for his glory. It is a God-ordained opportunity for his glory. One of my favorite stories, it was one of the biggest lessons for me, was on the day that the doctor told us about Elisha, that Elisha was very sick and that he would never make it. We came home from the hospital and our house was full of people. I had called one friend and told her and she had called everyone else in our church. And David and I were the teachers of a very large young married couple Sunday school class and they were all there. They were already interceding for us when we walked in. And I walked in and I knelt at the couch, David beside me, and I began to pray something guttural. Why? Why? Are you kidding me? Why? Why? And at some point, my pastor must have slipped in the front door because the next thing I know, he's right beside me at the couch and he leans over and he says these words. Stop saying why, Melissa, and ask what? Can I give you that lesson today? Stop asking why and ask what? What does it mean? What is it for? What will you teach me? In what way will you use this? What is next? What can I do for you, God? Stop asking why and ask what. The second thing that I focused on was my purpose. And you can write that down, your purpose. Every one of us in this room are called to a purpose. I'm not talking about you're called to be an astronaut or a third grade teacher or a sheriff. I'm talking about the fact that you are called to live a life of purpose on purpose. Well, that might've been the case for me, Melissa, at one time, but now I'm retired. I know, I know, Melissa, but I just stay at home with my kids and I'm just a stay at home mom. What are you talking about? What in the world are you talking about? You have one purpose and it is this, to further the kingdom of God, to advance the kingdom of God. You wanna do it as an astronaut? Great, you wanna do it as a third grade teacher? Wonderful, wanna do it as a stay home mom who homeschools her kids? Perfect, but do the thing. Advance the kingdom of God. That's what you were called to do. You can't say, I'm too old now. I don't have a purpose anymore. What? Hear me. Don't confuse your significance with your hiddenness. That isn't how God works. Duncan and Dieball, listen to me. Don't confuse your significance with your hiddenness. That's not the kind of God we serve. And the reason is this, because God has something for you to do. He has something for you to build. He has something for you to be. God has something for you to do. You were created for good works. God has something for you to build. It's upon this rock that he will build his church. That's us. And God has something for you to be. And it's every single day becoming a new creation. And number three, I worked on my perspective. Here's a story. 
Years ago, my parents came to visit us in Nashville. They brought my cousin, Brandon. And on the morning that we were supposed to take them back to the airport, we were running late. So David back here, my husband, decides that it's a good idea to go 108 miles an hour down I-65, weaving and bobbing out of 8 a.m. traffic. He's going so fast that my dad was saying, as he was holding on to the car, I'll buy another ticket. I'll buy us another ticket. We can miss this plane. David's like, I'm gonna get you there. We started saying, David, we're getting sick in the back seat. We're getting real sick. My cousin Brandon said, I'm not feeling very good. Brandon rolled down the window, vomited out the side of the car, but because we were going so fast, it hit a Cadillac of senior citizens. David continues rolling down the road. Finally, a guy pulls up in a car beside us and he looks across at David and he goes like this. And David says, you wanna fight me? You wanna fight me? Cause I'll pull over and fight you. The guy goes, David goes, don't, I, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm here, I'm gonna pull over right there. I'm gonna pull over right there and fight you. The guy finally rolls down his window and he goes, you've got a flat tire. And David goes just like this. Hey, thanks buddy. Thanks man. See you buddy. Have a good day. Have a good day. Now that is a shift in perspective right there. How are you looking at your situation? Please don't spend 30 years of your life like I did, hurt and hostile. And don't spend it angry like David. There is a shift that needs to come in our perspective. And how we can begin this shift is by knowing who we are and who God is. That's how the tide begins to turn. That happens here, that happens in small groups, that happens staying in uh, community with like-minded believers, that's how that happens. Knowing who we are and who God is shapes our perspective because it causes a full reliance on his character. All of a sudden, we get to depend on him in those situations and not us. This is a full-blown reliance on the character of God. If you have ever read Psalms, non-believers, non-church friends who are watching, Psalms is a list of songs that were written by musicians who allow me to tell you are the worst kind of people. Aren't we, Pastor Stephen? We're the worst. We are so up and so down. Our mood changes every day. Just look at the Psalms and you'll see. One day, David is like, you are my rock and my strong tower. I am safe. 16 hours later, he's like, I heard God's name and I moaned. All over the place. But the great thing about the Psalms is this. They always bring it back to the reliance on God. They always turn it back to who He is. I may not feel this way, but I know you are good. My head may be down, but you are the lifter of it. I may be fearful and I may be afraid and I may be hurt, but I know that I can run into you and I am safe. 
They always turned it back to God. So let me help you all with a little perspective shift of your own. Y'all, God has never hated you. Never, not once, not one minute. He's never forgotten you. He's never given up on you. He has certainly never made a mistake with you. In fact, of all of the things that God could have been, he could have been mad at me, tired of me, disgusted, disinterested, fed up. But when I look back at my life, all he's ever really been is kind. I see it now. Sometimes marriages don't work. Sometimes babies die. Sometimes rehab turns to relapse. And we're left just asking why. And of all the prayers I've prayed, I still wonder if he's real. And if he is, how is he choosing? Who he does and doesn't heal. I've tried to run from Jesus. I've started holy wars. I've tried the patient waiting and the kicking down the doors. I've cursed his name in anger with my fist raised to the sky and in return. All he's ever been is kind. Mm -hmm. And I know I wasn't there. But when I look up at that cross, I see the darkest day in history. I guess that's what kindness costs. I've tried to run from Jesus. I've started holy wars. I've tried the patient waiting and the kicking down the doors. Oh, I've cursed his name in anger with my fist raised to the sky. But in return, all he's ever been is kind. All he's ever been is kind. I want to close with this story. When my daughter Remy was three years old, Remy was one of the worst toddlers you've ever met in your life. Don't come at me with your story of, oh, my daughter was, I can take you toe to toe, woman. She was a beast. I put her in a preschool down the street from us. The preschool teacher, Miss Crystal, came and told me one day, Remy doesn't like naps. And I was like, I know, that's why I brought her to here to you. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. And she said, seriously, we're really having trouble with Remy when it comes to nap time. And I said, okay, what, what time is your nap time today? And she told me, I said, okay, do you close the blinds in here to make the room dark? She said, yes. I said, do you cover the, the window in the door? to make it dark? She said, yes. I said, well, today, I want you to leave about this much space, just enough for my eye to be watching. She said, okay. 
So, two o'clock, I head up to the school. And as I'm walking down the hall, I can hear, you know, the song playing. This is where we go to sleep, go to sleep. And I thought, well, there's your first problem. Remy gonna chew you up and spit you out. Okay? Remy's a gangster rap kind of kid. And I look through the, through the window and I see all of the little nap mats and 11 little kids laying on their nap mats. And Remy's not there. She's not even in the room. I cannot find her. And she goes by, she tucks in all the kids and they start, slowly start to close their eyes. Where's Remy? Nobody knows. And then I see Miss Crystal walk back to the table in the back of the room and get down on the floor. And I see her crawl up under the table and I see the most beautiful pair of chubby legs kick her right in the face. And I see her try again. And I see an arm punch her. And I see a hand slap her. And I see legs that are just kicking and kicking and kicking. And I swing the door open. And I walk in and I say, Miss Crystal, I got this. And I lean down and I grab two little chubby legs and I pull them out of the room while all the kids are going like this. And as I pull her out of the room, here is what she screams. Is anybody gonna help me? Is anybody gonna help me? Would you just stop fighting? Would you just stop fighting? Would you just rest? Someone is gonna help you because all he needs is this much space right there. He has never not once, taken his eye off of you. He has never looked away. He cares so much for what you are doing and running from and fighting from and fighting through underneath that table. And he walks in and he says, I got this, I got this. And when you scream, are you gonna help me? Are you gonna do anything? He says, yes, I've been watching the whole time. I got this all mapped out. You just have to believe. Would you close your eyes with me this morning? God, I love you so much. Nehemiah 9 says that you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And then it goes on and it says, and you did not forsake them. But if anybody is watching today, God, and they don't understand what that means, I'm gonna put it in my words. You have forgiven us. You've been thoughtful and kind to us. You take your time with us and you teach us. And we have never known a love like yours from anybody else in our entire life. And you have never walked away from us, not once. So every pain, every broken part, every missing piece, every part that we thought you got lazy on us and you just missed, you, you just missed that one. You did not get me right. You did not get my body right or my mind right or my circumstances right or my money right or my marriage right. You got this. You're in all of it. The mess, that message for your glory, God. And it's in your name we pray. Thank you for being so kind. Amen. I love you all. Thank you so much.